0: According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, our beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me one more time in Matthew 26. One more time, uh, not that we're going to finish the chapter today, but we may not be here next week. Matthew 26. One of the longest chapters in the whole Bible. There are 75 verses in this chapter, so we are by no means approaching the end of that. We barely scratched the surface. Verses 14 through 16, though, deals with Judas Iscariot and his betrayal. One of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. page is (laughs) stuck. There we go. From then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. All right. That's what we're looking at here today. We're going to go back to the Old Testament and see the foreshadowing of this. We're going to see the foundation and the prophecies related to Judas and uh, also discuss his accountability that uh, he's he's not innocent even though this was predestined to occur. And we've got to make sure that we understand how that works. How does God's plan reconcile with our volition and why we're still accountable, even when in our negative volition we're achieving his purpose. So that will be a very important matter for us to discuss today. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Make sure we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Distractions are set aside. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the truth of Your Word. We thank You for this day and the privilege we have to assemble together. We thank You, Father, for the grace that You pour forth upon us, grace upon grace, day after day, moment after moment, Father. We commit to You now our time of study. We ask for Your blessing upon it. Open the eyes of our understanding, Father. We thank You in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Why does Judas have a last name? (laughs) Peter, Andrew, James, John, Nathaniel. I mean, you got 11 disciples with no last name, and then the one guy with the last name. Why is that? <laughs> okay, that's a good answer. I don't have the answer. I'm just throwing it out there as a hypothetical rhetorical. <laughs> okay. he's is... There was another Judas, not a Yeah. And uh, so there's that. All right. My apologies. I just threw that off the top of my head and there it is. All right. Let's uh, we are in. We are ready now today to handle main point five. We've had four points of study already. We're combining episodes 14, 15 and 16. Jesus tells the date of the crucifixion in the first five verses, the anointing by Mary at Simon's feast in verses six through 13 And then Judas contracting the betrayal in verses 14 through 16. Those are all in Matthew chapter 26. We have parallel text in Mark 14. We won't turn there. And uh, we also have parallel text in Luke 22, verses 3 through 6, as it relates to this uh, episode 16, Judas contracts the betrayal. We've covered four points of study already. Let's just move on to point five. Judas' betrayal fulfilled a number of Old Testament prophecies. And we start with the foreshadowing of Ahithophel. The foreshadowing of Ahithophel. So we need to turn back now to 2 Samuel chapter 15. 2 Samuel chapter 15. Basically chapters 15, 16, and 17. We're going to find um Reference here to Absalom's rebellion. We're going to find reference here to uh, God's continued hand of discipline upon David's life. Not that he was not forgiven, because he was forgiven. He, uh, he confessed and he repented immediately upon being exposed by the prophet uh, Nathan. Nevertheless, he would continue to have discipline in his life, in his family, for the rest of his days. And it would be reflected in the generation of his children. You understand. So, um, as we look here at Second Samuel, uh, with Absalom's rebellion here, um, and we, we dealt with this at considerable length years ago when we taught this through the, the Life of David series. But the, um, I guess the one side trip I'll give you is the, is the discipline here in, in chapter 12. All right. So in chapter 12, when uh, Nathan is rebuking David, Um, he he gives him this parable about uh, a man and, and lambs and, and gets David just hopping mad. David's anger burned greatly against the man. And this is all just a make-believe story. It's a parable. But it's convicting David out of his own mouth because uh, the parable is, is describing David's attitude towards Bathsheba and towards another man's wife. And... Um, So David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. By his own mouth, that's where it is. He deserves to die. David deserves to die. He should be stoned to death for his adultery. He should be stoned to death for his murder. Under Mosaic law, he was vulnerable to the death penalty twice. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. And Nathan then said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel it is I who anointed you king over Israel it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care you know when he became king he inherited Saul's harem in addition to his own I gave you the house of Israel and Judah and if that had been too little I would have added to you many more things like these we start to appreciate capacity of what God provides and increased capacity for increased faithfulness, what more might He pour forth if we simply stay humble, stay faithful, and, uh, and uh, walk in the path that He designs for us? Now, uh, when you get down to verse 11, "...Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household." And this is part of the consequences. He's going to be forgiven, but he will still face these consequences. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Why is this? Why does he need public humiliation, public shame? Because what you did, you did secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. This is consequences for what he did and what he thought he was getting away with. I think he made the discipline worse by virtue of the fact. How long did he cover it up? How long did he keep it secret? You know, why did God wait an entire? I mean, it was nine months for the baby to get born, right? And then why did he wait all this length of time uh, to send Nathan? He could have sent Nathan the next morning. Why did he not send? Why did the Lord not send Nathan, the prophet, until after? The nine-month pregnancy after the birth of the child, after the child, you know, and here's the child going to be struck struck dead here. Um, My personal thought is that he was giving David time to repent. He was giving David time to confess. And uh, without the uh, prophetic exposure. And uh, since that didn't happen, here it comes. The longer you wait to confess, the worse the consequences are going to be. Understand that. So, uh you did it secretly, I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also taken away your sin, you shall not die. He was that close to the sin unto death. Alright, so there are consequences though. Because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also that is born to you shall surely die. So, this is all a part of the consequences. When we get to chapter 15... Uh, years have now gone by, some length of time has gone by, and these adult sons, uh, Absalom and Amnon, and some terrible things that happen in these chapters. Now, um, Amnon rapes his sister, and there's some ugliness there, and then uh, Absalom here is going to get his vengeance and uh, to, by killing Amnon, and then uh, more vengeance by taking the, uh, all right, we've got nursery this morning. Am I supposed to tell you that? All right. Uh, So, here's Absalom now and his rebellion. And ultimately, in chapter 15, I'm headed for verse 31, but I want you to spot something. Um, Verse 13 of 2 Samuel 15. This will help us to kind of understand what David's attitude is in the rebellion. What David's attitude is in the betrayal. So... um, Man, without reading the whole chapter. um, We see Ahithophel mentioned in verse 12, Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city Gilo, while he was offering the sacrifices. And the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. The, the conspiracy was building prior to verse 12. But when, with the addition of Ahithophel, there's nothing that can stop it. All right, The addition of Ahithophel means there's no turning back. This conspiracy is going to work. It's going to have success. Then a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. And I think this, too, comes with the, uh, by virtue of the wisdom that Ahithophel was able to offer. I mean, it's one thing to convince the guards to overthrow the king. It's something else to to have military control. It's something else to have um, the treasury, to plunder the treasury, where you can pay off the people you have to pay off. But to actually win the hearts of the people to where they're okay with the coup. They're okay with the new king. Uh, that right there uh, is what's going to give lasting, permanent success to your rebellion. They, uh, they're going to validate your rebellion because they're happy to have that king gone and, and they'll they'll put up with you kind of a thing. And that's what we see here. So David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, for otherwise none of us will escape from Absalom. He's lost the hearts of the people. And so uh, now they're fleeing. And... Um, more of this here. I'm in Second Samuel 15 at the moment. Reviewing the uh, rebellion here of Ahithophel and how this serves as foreshadowing against the betrayal by Judas Iscariot. All right. A couple other things to, to pick up on here. Um, Verse 18, all of his servants passed on beside him, all the herathites the Pelethites, all the Gittites, 600 men who had come with him from Gath, passed on before the king. Uh, amazing. Some of his most loyal bodyguards, most loyal servants are actually um, <laughs> Philistines, you know, uh, some Gittites, some men from Gath and men that uh, I believe were Gentiles that uh, got saved and and uh, we're following David before he was king, and they're following David while he's king, and they're willing to follow him after he's no longer king anymore. And uh, principle's there that we can talk about. Verse 16, I should have highlighted too. He leaves the concubines there to keep the house. That's a problem. They're going to they're gonna suffer for that. Then uh, Ittai. Ittai the Gittite um, approaches him. They have a conversation there in 19 through 23. Verse 24, Behold, Zadok also came and all the Levites with him, carrying the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God, and Abiathar came up until all the people had finished passing from the city. Now here's here's an episode that that coincides with David's departure, and um, the king is going to have Zadok return. And this is uh, the faithfulness of Zadok that will be rewarded in the Millennial Kingdom. The the Zadokite priesthood, the descendants of Zadok are going to be particularly blessed in the Millennial Kingdom because of their faithfulness, Zadok's faithfulness, during uh, the time of David's discipline here. The king says to Zadok, return the ark of God to the city. If I find favor in the sight of the Lord, then He will bring me back again and show me both it and His habitation. Alright, so... Um, what do we learn from this? All right. Hey, Doug, what do we learn from this? David doesn't know the consequences. David doesn't know he's going to come back again. David's fleeing. Absalom's rebelling. And does David know that he's coming back? He doesn't know. We don't know the end of our divine discipline. Is this going to produce repentance and bring me back? Or is this is is God removing me? Uh, We need to understand these things. All right. All right, let's just stick with what we're looking at here. Verse 31. Um, I don't wanna, if, you want, if you want more on this, you can get the classes off the website. Uh, verse 30, David went up to the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went, and his head was covered, and he walked barefoot. Then all the people who were with him each covered his head and went up weeping as they went. Now, someone told David the worst thing he could have heard at this point. Okay. As up till now, he's not sure. Uh, he's had other men come and saying, I'm yours, I'll go with you. And, but here someone finally tells him Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And this is probably the worst thing they could have told him. And uh, David said, O Lord, I pray, make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. Because if the Lord is with Ahithophel, if, if, if this is the Lord's doing, then David's done. He's absolutely done. He's dying the sin of death. He will never be restored to his throne. This is... Uh, it will now be the... Uh, it will be the Absalom throne instead of the Davidic throne from that point forward. So, that's uh, that's where that is there. We get down to chapter 16. And we start to see that this is not of the Lord. The Lord's permitting it, but the Lord's not directing it. It's not God's directive will. This is permissive will. Part of David's discipline. It's what he prophesied through Nathan. Um, and so... Um, Although Absalom is allowed, or I'm sorry, Ahithophel is allowed to be part of this conspiracy, it's not going to succeed. What uh, the man here is, who is otherwise full of wisdom and full of um, uh, uh, proper counsel and proper guidance, he's not going to be listened to. God is going to allow for this to be disrupted, and we see this when you get over to chapter 16. So join me there, chapter 16 now. All right. Um, Pick up our reading at verse 15. Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, entered Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. Now it came about when Hushai the Archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, that Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom says to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why do you not go with your friend? You know, and Ittai the Gittite and all these other guys, Zadok and Abiathar, all these guys are chasing after David. It's kind of interesting trying to figure out who's leaving and who's staying. Why are you here? I thought you were the king's friend. Why didn't you flee with David? And Hushai said to Absalom, no, for whom the Lord, this people, and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, with him I remain. Besides, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son? As I've served in your father's presence, so I will be in your presence. And he says, no, David's old news. He's the former king. I'm, I'm your guy. So Absalom said to Ahithophel, give your advice, what shall we do? And uh, anyway, this is where the advice is going to get ugly. Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house. and Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself odious to your father. The hands of all who are with you also will be strengthened. And so this is, by the way, this seems pretty brutal in our modern culture and sensibilities, but this was pretty common. And uh, in the ancient world, when you take custody of, uh, of uh, the former king's harem, you are laying claim to everything that was his. His women, his wealth, his throne, his authority, everything. And uh, you do so here in broad daylight, which I can't understand that either. But <laughs> again, I'm, I'm trapped by my modern sensibilities. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the side of all Israel. And uh, they remember there were ten of them that were left there. And I don't know how long that took, if they did one a night for ten nights or whatever they did. But anyway, um, all Israel observed that this harem now belongs to Absalom and it no longer belongs to David. And um, the, uh, notice verse 23, the advice... Of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one inquired of the word of God. I mean, asking what he thought was like opening the Bible. Right? Imagine this is a mature believer, but this is a mature believer who is so hurt. Look what he's counseling. Look what he's advising. Look what he's he's instigating. I've gone back and forth in my mind, wondering: Did, did Ahithophel know about Nathan's prophecy? I don't think he did. Uh, He doesn't appear to be doing this in obedience to something that he heard Nathan pronounce. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. There's no way to know. He's not mentioned in chapter 12 when Nathan is uttering those things. And nowhere in any of these chapters does David relate. Evidently, this is just a private message between Nathan and David and no one else knew about it. But uh, obviously... Um, there was some spirit at work that motivated Ahithophel to command Absalom to go do this, to, to go um, take these concubines. Okay? So the advice of Ahithophel regarded uh, was as if one inquired of the word of God. That's how trustworthy he was. That's how like-minded he was with, with the Lord. That his opinion, his thoughts, his, his first gut instinct on any Bible question was as if he'd opened the Bible itself and, and, and read it right out of the text. So here is uh, here is betrayal. Now, when we look at the Psalms, Psalm 41 and Psalm 55, and I think we read these as we were running out of time last week. So these will be familiar to you. Uh, Psalm 41 verses 4 through 9 and Psalm 55 verses 12 through 14. The narrative in Samuel does not nearly describe the intimacy the way the Psalms do. I think. Uh, I think the author of uh, of uh, Second Samuel there. I think the uh, the historical narrative described it in, in more sterile terms, but when David composes the Psalms, I think he's pretty pretty blunt, pretty uh, heartbroken, and uh, and so that comes out when he talks about his close friend in whom I trusted. We have really, I think, the clear intimacy portrayed here, verses four through nine of Psalm 41. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me, heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. My enemies speak evil against me. When will he die and his name perish? (laughs) Right? The body of Christ is supposed to be building you up, supposed to be encouraging you, supposed to be uh, rejoicing when you rejoice, uh, supposed to be praying for your blessings. Right? Ideally, uh, a pastor wants his congregation praying for his... um, Blessings, the blessings on his study and and more years to go and in in and and so forth. We want this pastor to be powerful in the scriptures. We want him to still be teaching Bible class when my kids are married and when they're raising their kids and and so forth. The flip side of that is when, uh, due to bitterness and other other issues. When uh, believers start saying this, uh, when will he die and his name perish? Uh, when can we get a better pastor? When will the Lord finally uh, get rid of this guy? Kind of a thing. And when your heart turns there, this is where you are. All right. So my enemies speak evil against me. When will he die and his name perish? And uh, you know, when you've been in the ministry for whatever length of time, you start to see this and. People that tell you that, oh, I can't wait till you do my daughter's wedding. And then anyway, let's move on. Verse six, when it comes to me, he speaks falsehood. His heart gathers wickedness to itself. Notice now, notice now what's happening here. Um, He wants this guy dead, but he still face to face speaks to him um, in a deceptive way. He comes to me speaking falsehood while his heart is gathering wickedness to itself. When he goes outside, he tells it. The whole purpose for the fellowship or the the feigned fellowship is only so they can get more ammunition to take out to the conspirators. That's the whole reason why they act like they're still your friend. So when he goes outside, he tells it. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me, they devise my hurt. And so it's a long-growing conspiracy. This is what we have with the chief priests and the, and the elders of the people. They are plotting the, the murder of Jesus Christ. They've been plotting it for weeks. They've been plotting it for months. And um, they have no way to get it done until Judas drops in their lap. And says, what will you pay me to betray him? And uh, I think it's similar here with uh, Absalom and his conspirators, his buddies, his the, uh, you know, fellow conspirators. It was not going to happen until Ahithophel fell on his lap. And then there was nothing that could stop it. Against me they devised my hurt, saying, A wicked thing is poured down upon him that when he lies down he will not rise up again. So this is the the method that they're going to use. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. When the adversary can get the closest one to you to be your betrayer, that's the most effective from his point of view. All right? My close friend in whom I trusted. I think, um, you know, short of a of a spouse... <laughs> uh who's going to be closer to you than your spouse that's that's the best betrayal right there uh i say best from from satan's point of view the most effective traitor is going to be your husband it's going to be your wife it's going to be one that's the closest to you uh david i think david destroyed soul capacity to have any kind of intimacy with his wife wives right and so uh in, in his case after the death of jonathan i think ahithophel became his closest spiritual intimate friend And there it was. My close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And so uh, what do we learn from this? Don't trust anybody? Is that what we learn? Well, we learn, cursed is the man who trusts in man. We, We trust in the Lord first. And we trust our brothers in Christ only so far as we're trusting in the Lord, right? We understand that. All right, Psalm 55 then. Two psalms that David composed in the aftermath of this betrayal. He says, um, well, when he describes the uh, betrayal here in verses 1 through 11, let's just pick up with verse 12. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. That's not nearly as painful. (laughs) those outside the church, not nearly as painful. But the people here, the people close to you, when they start uh, turning ugly, then it really hurts. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man, my equal. And that's, that's powerful right there. You know, as it relates to David, David's the only man in Scripture called a man after God's own heart. And he he himself puts Ahithophel on this on this uh, playing field here. A man, my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend. We who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of God in the throng. Now, can you imagine? Let me ask you this: walked in the house of God in the throng. Who built the temple? Solomon, the temple ain't even built yet. temple was not built at all in David's lifetime. So what's David talking about when he says we walked in the house of God? can't be the temple. See, I th- David understood the reality. David understood that the tabernacle was an for- earthly picture of the heavenly reality. And the temple was going to be another earthly picture of the heavenly reality. I believe David was fully aware of what that heavenly reality was. And walking in the house of God means occupying with Jesus Christ, walking in the Word of God, having fellowship wherever you are upon this earth. You know, a shepherd at three in the morning uh, <laughs> playing his, uh, his pipes and watching the sheep and staying awake uh, has a lot of time to walk in the house of God. Has an awful lot of time to be intimate with the Lord. And to do so with your familiar friends where you can fellowship over doctrine. We see this here. We who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of God in the throng. Let death come deceitfully upon them. Let them go down alive to shale for evil is in their dwelling in their midst. As for me, I shall call upon God and the Lord will save me. So what do you do when you're betrayed? What is the what is the prayer item here? He laments. He is sorrowful. He obviously does not want it to succeed. Let death come deceitfully upon them. In other words, as they are conspiring to betray, well, let it come back on their own head. That's how God's uh, program works there. But as for me, I shall call upon God. It's in the hands of the Lord. You just leave people in the hands of the Lord. When you're betrayed, you leave them in the hands of the Lord. Father, don't don't let them succeed in their betrayal. And uh, as for me, I will call upon God. The Lord will say, "I'm in your hands, God." Is this conspiracy going to work? Is it not going to work? Hmm. All right. Well, it goes on. Um, if you want the well, verse twenty-one. I guess when the final word is given on this, uh, his speech was smoother than butter, but his heart was warm. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Keeping the, the ruse going as if, oh yeah, we're still having fellowship. No, nope, because where's the heart? The heart's poisoned. the heart's bitter. All right, so there it is. The foreshadowing of Ahithophel. Now, secondly, 30 pieces of silver. This was prophesied as well Zechariah 11, verse 12. Again, main point five: Judas's betrayal fulfilled a number of Old Testament prophecies, including a the foreshadowing of Ahithophel. Now, that's important because there's nowhere in Samuel or in Psalms, there's nowhere there that does it say. By the way, this is prophecy of a of a betrayal yet to come, right? <laughs> it's only after the fact that we see the relationship between Psalms and and the Gospels. It's after the fact that we see the type and the anti-type, the foreshadowing and its fulfillment. But here, Zechariah 11, let's look at this prophecy. Zechariah 11. We have both 12 and 13 here for points B and C. The 30 pieces of uh, silver and then the potter's field. All right, Zechariah chapter 11. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that a fire may feed on your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, because the glorious trees have been destroyed. Wail, O oaks of Bashan, for the impenetrable forest has come down. There is a sound of the shepherds' uh, wail, for their glory is ruined. There is a sound of uh, the young lion's roar, for the pride of Jordan is ruined. Now, we've got a a message and a rebuke here that applies during Zechariah's time, but also looks forward for centuries. Now notice, thus says the Lord my God, pasture the flock doomed to slaughter. Pasture the flock doomed to slaughter. So the Lord has instructions to a faithful shepherd. And the faithful shepherd is going to stay faithful. He's going to pasture. He's going to shepherd. But if the flock is doomed to slaughter, then why bother? (laughs) If <laughs> it's a doomed flock, well then who cares? Why am I taking a look at it? Why am I watching after it? Well, because I'm a faithful shepherd, that's why. Those who buy them slay them and go unpunished. And each of those who sell them says, Blessed be the Lord, for I have become rich. In other words, yeah, we'll be religious as long as it benefits us. And their own shepherds have no pity on them, for I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. But behold, I will cause the men to fall, each into another's power and into the power of his king, and they will strike the land, and I will not deliver them from their power. So here's divine discipline. And Israel is going to come under divine discipline. They're going to be destroyed as a nation in 70 A.D. So I pastured the flock, doomed to slaughter, hence the afflicted of the flock. And I took for myself two staffs, the one I called favor and the other I called union. So I pastured the flock. Then I annihilated the three shepherds in one month for my soul was impatient with them and their soul also was weary of me. Oh, I love this. Maybe someday the Lord will let me teach Zechariah. It was almost unfair teaching this in the minor prophet series where we had to teach uh, the whole book of Zechariah in a month. All right. Um. Verse 9, I, uh, I said, I will not pasture you. Uh, what is to die? Let it die. What is to be annihilated? Let it be annihilated. Let those who are left eat one another's flesh. <laughs> All right. You know, Moses likewise had a similar lament and a similar grumble. You know, these wretched people, shall I bring water for you from the, from the rock? I took my staff, favor, and cut it in pieces to break my covenant, which I had made with all the people. So it was broken on that day. And thus the afflicted of the, land, of the flock who were watching me realized that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages. But if not, never mind. So what would the wages be for a faithless shepherd that's smashing all their... Staffs and no longer caring for the flock and letting them letting the dying ones die anyway and betraying them and all that the faithless shepherd what, what would you pay a guy like that you know imagine somebody in the workplace who grumbles and complains and quits and uh, breaks up all you know smashes things and and then uh, as they're storming out the door I say oh wait a minute I, I, can I get my last paycheck please <laughs> I, I suspect that your last paycheck is going to be uh, withheld. While they uh, have to pay the damages. Um, But it's interesting here. If it is good in your sight, give me my wages. But if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Now, why? Because it was good in their sight. What they saw is what they wanted. Hmm. Just like uh, the scribes and the Pharisees. Oh, yeah, they'll pay them 30 pieces of silver. Because what they see is the betrayal of Jesus Christ. And that's what they want. It's good in their sight. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Then verse 13. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter. That magnificent price at which I was valued by them. Throw it to the potter. So Zechariah didn't even get to keep the the money he made on this. (laughs) Right? And... uh, so I threw it 30 shekels of silver and threw it to the potter, to the house of the Lord. How come Zechariah can't even keep the money he just earned? Well, because Judas isn't going to keep the money he's going to earn either. He's going to go out and hang himself. And we see this here. Then I cut in pieces my second staff union to break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. And it goes on. Uh, The Lord said to me, take again for yourself the equipment of a foolish shepherd. Now, seriously, I would not trade being a church-age pastor teacher for anything, but I admit there's a part of me that would have had some fun with some of these pantomimes, uh, some of these dramatic portrayals, you know, laying on, like Ezekiel, laying on one side for 40 days, laying on another side for 390 days. and um, Yeah, anyway, neat the way uh, these prophets got to work. We have the 30 pieces of silver. We got the potter's field. If we turn over to Matthew 27, we're going to see this related to the potter's field. And of course, 26 is where we see the, the pieces of silver. Hmm. You know, I find it remarkable. What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out to him 30 pieces of silver. Was Zechariah 11 in their mind at the time? (laughs) Is it just what they had on hand? Um, Why that amount? I don't think they, they understood that they were fulfilling Zechariah 11. I think that they were so lost in their satanic deception it never even dawned on them that uh, that their their blood money was precisely what Zechariah had said it would be 600 years ago, 500 years ago. But here it is. All right, then you get into chapter 27. When the morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned... He felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver. Now, he felt remorse. This is metamelamai. It's not metanoeo. It is not repentance. He does not repent. He never repents. There's a difference between remorse and repentance. There's a difference between feeling sad about something. Doug, there's a difference between feeling sad about something and uh, confessing in agreement that uh, this violates the will of God. All right. And this is what we see here. We don't see repentance. We see regret. And so you, uh, you ask yourself, uh, if, if um, it's the difference between confession and admission, for example. Uh, a lot of believers think that confession of sin is, is admitting what they've done. Oh, okay, I got caught. Yep, God, I did this. Right? That's not confession. It's not admission. It's, it's, it's uh, under confession. We are in agreement with God. That yes, this is what I've done. This violates your standard of righteousness. I forsake this. I'm putting this away. I want no part of this. And you are saying the same thing. Hummel You're saying the same thing God says with relationship to your sin. You're not just owning up to something and admitting, oh, you caught me. I did this. Not at all. Repentance is agreement with what God has to say on, uh, on a particular matter. Now, the, uh, the regret that he has here, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And we'll talk about this. What was, what was Judas hoping to accomplish in the betrayal? Was he hoping that the Christ would, uh, would then conquer Rome and bring in the kingdom? He was definitely uh, stunned when Jesus silently just allowed himself to be arrested and went off to face the trial. Didn't even open his mouth. Got condemned and broke Judas's heart. And, uh, I mean, he is a traitor, but Jesus calls him friend. And he uh, testifies here to his innocence. Uh, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood, but they said, what is that to us? <laughs> None of our business. We got what we wanted out of you. We already have your testimony. See to that yourself. And uh, he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. And he went away and hanged himself. Uh, there's a parallel text in this that mentions uh, that, that I guess evidently he hangs himself and the rope breaks and his guts spill forth and whatever else. Then the chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, "It is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury, since it is at the price of blood." <laughs> this is so. To me, this verse. Is all you need to know about the Pharisees in the New Testament. These guys are murderers. You know, it is not lawful to murder either, right? Thou shalt not murder. It's the price of blood, it's blood money. It's blood money. We can't take this. Okay. We can, yeah, it's the blood money you paid. It came from the treasury. Where did you get it? Alright. So they conferred together. And with the money, they bought the potter's field. That's a burial place for strangers. Again, did it dawn on them? Hey, you know what? This is, uh, this is a lot like Zechariah 11. <laughs> I don't think they had a clue. I don't think they had a clue. I think believers that are so caught up... Um, I, I think I can defend this biblically. And I can defend this in experience... Believers that are so wrapped up in reversionism, that are so wrapped up in what they're doing, it never even dawns on them that they're, that, that this is a, a biblical application or that, that, that God would be accomplishing something in and through this. I don't think the amount of 30, sil- 30 pieces of silver hit them from Zechariah 11, verse 12, nor the, the fact that this land we're buying is a potter's field and that correlates with... with uh, the very next verse in that same context of Zechariah 11. All right, so there it is. For this reason, that field has been called the the field of blood to this day. This day being the time of Matthew's composition. Uh, Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one whose... um, price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. When we get into chapter 27, I'll explain to you why Jeremiah's name is mentioned there, when you and I both know it's Zechariah. Okay, is that a typo? <laughs> is that a problem with our manuscripts? All right, you're not the first person to notice that. Now, um, let we got 15 minutes left, which is good, because I want to make sure we have time to discuss this. Point D. Important to note: God's predetermined plan to crucify Christ. Before I give that to you, let's once again let's look at Acts chapter two. We we looked at this verse last week. Um, I want to I want to share this with you again. Acts chapter two. Peter's sermon about the predetermined plan of God. Acts 2.23. Acts 2.23. Because a lot of believers struggle with this. Calvinists, Arminians, a lot of folks struggle with this. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God the Father predetermined this, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The predetermined plan, but also notice, and foreknowledge of God. We want to understand that. Because some might try to diminish judas's culpability here no can't do that and this is the this is the principle i'm giving to you to point d god's predetermined plan to crucify christ and his prophetic announcement of who the instrument would be judas was known from the very beginning it's why he was appointed as one of the twelve he announced it on the night he was betrayed he said the one who Dips the morsel in the, uh dips the morsel with me. Is the one who will betray me. All the foreshadowing with the Hithophel. All the, the um, prophecies in Psalm 41 and 55 and Zechariah 11. God's predetermined plan to crucify Christ. And His prophetic announcement of who the instrument would be. Does not remove culpability from the tool. Who volitionally performed the predicted deed. It does not remove culpability. Judas still made the choices he made. We reap what we sow. We make decisions. We face consequences. Now, did God know those consequences ahead of time? Of course He knew the consequences ahead of time. He knew the decisions ahead of time. That's why it's the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God did not predetermined for Peter to be the traitor he predetermined that Judas would be the traitor why did he predetermine that because he knew that Peter would deny but Peter wouldn't betray he knew that Judas would betray that's why it's predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God you don't separate those you don't separate those they're both included now, the Calvinist separates those and, and does so unfairly to the text. Luke twenty-two twenty-two, by the way, spells this out very explicitly. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed as it has been determined. But woe, woe to that man. Luke 22, 22, For indeed, here He is in the upper room. This is My body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in My blood. But behold, the hand of the one betraying Me is with Mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. As it has been determined. The predetermined plan. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. Uh, They don't talk about it very long, though, because in verse 24, they want to immediately get to more important subjects like which one of us is the greatest. (laughs) All right. But look at that again, the statement made in verse 22. It's been determined, but woe. It's been determined, but woe. So just because it's been determined, it does not remove culpability. It does not remove guilt. It does not remove uh, culpability from the tool who volitionally performed the predicted deed. Judas is still accountable for his treason, for his betrayal. Does that make sense? Now some would say well but it's not really his fault because God decreed that Judas would be that Judas would betray Jesus so it's really God's fault God decreed it and made it happen And this is where we have to be careful. This is where we have to recognize that it's the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God together, combined. That the predetermined plan is not separated from his foreknowledge. It, in fact, incorporates his foreknowledge. Same thing with our election. We are chosen according to foreknowledge. Calvinists deny that too. All right. Uh, They define foreknowledge based on what God predetermines. And they'll tell you this, the only, ways, the only way God knows ahead of time what's going to happen is because He foreordained it to happen. And so they define foreknowledge as God knows based upon what He decreed. So of course He knows the future, He decreed it. And that's a bad definition of foreknowledge. In fact, that's not a, I can demonstrate biblically that that's not how God knows things ahead of time. God knows the end from the beginning, everything in between. He also knows things that He hasn't decreed. But the what ifs of what might happen if something else happens. And he knows all of those. And he didn't decree those. So you cannot say that foreknowledge is known only because he decreed it. That's not how God knows things. In any event. Um, did, God for, uh, for, or did God decree for the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? Or did they reap what they sowed based on their choices? And I hope that we can wrap our minds around this because both are true. God's decree absolutely happens. No purpose of God's can be thwarted. It was God's purpose to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because that produces a greater glory than had they remained. But Jesus confessed that if Capernaum miracles had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. They would have repented. And this, uh, this gives a lot of believers some, some trouble. And this is why Calvinists just throw their hands up and say, well, who are you, O pot, to, to talk, tell the potter what to do? But Jesus confessed that there, were, there, there was an alternative universe, right? An alternate timeline, a, 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 a what-if dimension, where Capernaum miracles could have been done and where Sodom and Gomorrah could have, would have repented. Right? So why did God not give Abraham those, or, or Lot, or anybody? Why did God not send Abraham down into the into the valley to do the Capernaum miracles so that Sodom would repent? Are the men of Sodom and Gomorrah going to rise up on Judgment Day and uh, complain that it's not their fault? It's God's fault because He didn't send Capernaum miracles to them? No. The men of Sodom will rise up and condemn the men of Capernaum for uh, receiving miracles far beyond anything they were given and acting worse than them. Okay? So this is where I mean, we, we might struggle with this because we can't know. I mean, we, we, we would look at it and say, well, wouldn't it be better to send the Capernaum miracles and have Sodom repent? And that'd be great. Wouldn't it be great if Sodom repented like Nineveh repented? Well, we think so, but we don't know. The ends from the beginnings. God does. And he has selected his plan for the maximum glory of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so whatever fruit those believers might have done had they repented, had they gotten saved. Let's say Sodom repents and whatever the population is, they get saved and they start bearing fruit and whatever. Um, but how much more fruit has been done in the centuries since Sodom was destroyed Because of believers in fear of what happened to Sodom. okay. And now maybe they're doing more, they're bearing more fruit in glorifying Christ. We can't know that. Only an omniscient sovereign God can know how much fruit was born under this timeline and what ifs versus how much fruit would be born under other timelines and what ifs. We can't possibly work that out. Our knowledge is far too finite to work anything like that out over a a limited period of time, let alone thousands of years with millions of people there's no way that we can we can grasp that all right last thing i guess i'll say on that the reason why foreknowledge is vital the reason why it's mentioned here the reason why it's mentioned in the election passage you go to romans 8 you go to first peter you want to study election it's according to the foreknowledge of god all right that we are chosen What does God know about us? And the fact that He knows ahead of time and the fact that He incorporates what He knows into His decree doesn't make it happen. It's not causative. It's not causative. Any questions on that? Some people think that foreknowledge is causative. Because God knows, God knew that I would accept Christ. Does not cause me to accept Christ. God knew, every, every, yeah, God knows every choice I make, but it isn't, it's not causative, it does not force me to make those choices. I still am free to make other choices. His awareness of what choice I make doesn't cause me to make that choice. I hope that's clear enough. And unless you are a Calvinist, there's no objection to that biblically morally ethically or any other way. The only objection you can have to that is if you insist upon the causative nature of God's sovereignty that he forces you to make every choice you make. All right? Which if that's true then then God's the author of evil, sin and evil. And he forced Satan to make his sin of evil. He forced Adam to make his sin and God is the author of every of every negative volition choice out there. Okay? And uh, that's a a deterministic worldview that I I find violates the the law of sowing and reaping. All right. Well, this wraps it up then. We will uh, come back and uh, move on into our following episodes here in Matthew 26. As I say, there's 75 verses in Matthew 26. So... um, we got the bargain, we got the betrayal, we got the first day of unleavened bread. The disciples came to Jesus and said, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat? Of the Passover. And so we've now, uh, we'll come back next week and we'll be on Thursday of the Passion Week. All right. This is the, the day that, before the night in which he's betrayed. This is the day before he goes to the cross. And whatever he did in the morning, we don't know. But um, in the about mid-afternoon, they're coming back into Jerusalem from Mount, Olives, uh, the Mount Olivet there in Bethany. And they're coming in to partake of the Passover dinner. And we're going to have to study why is this a Passover dinner when the Pharisees haven't had their Passover dinner yet. Uh, the Pharisees are having their Passover dinner on Friday. Why do Jesus and his disciples have Passover dinner on Thursday? How does that work? So we'll talk about that. We've got some some uh, important study to do to, to correlate all this. And uh, we'll get a good jump on that starting next week. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thank you for the opportunity we have to study, to show ourselves approved. And I pray, Father, that we would be mindful of the lessons that can be learned in studying about betrayals. Father, uh, to see how David uh, trusted in you in spite of uh, Absalom's rebellion and Ahithophel's betrayal. Uh, To see how Jesus continued to trust in you despite Judas' betrayal. Father, uh, none of us likes betrayal. And yet when it happens, when you assign that to us, Father, we need to respond as uh, David did, as Jesus did. We need to leave uh, vengeance in your hands. You will repay. We need to leave the matter in the hands of your justice and not seek it ourselves. Father, uh, open our eyes to see how these things can be applied. And, uh, And we just thank you in Christ's name. Amen.